How are you guys this morning? Good to see you. Enjoying your Labor Day weekend so far? Not really? Okay. (laughs) Well, please turn with your Bible to Joshua 23 for our study this morning. Joshua chapter 23 as we continue in the study of Joshua. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, we open up our hearts. God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would reveal more to us about your character and be gracious to give us the knowledge of God. We know that you tell us, Jesus, that without the Holy Spirit, we can't learn your word. And so would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth? Would you remove distractions and really bless this time? May there be fruit that comes through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last words. Last words really reveal a lot about a person, and and sometimes the last words are very meaningful and powerful. Sometimes they're just humorous. I'd like to give you a few famous last words. This is from a man named James French. He was a convicted murderer, and he actually did face the electric chair. And keep in mind, his name was James French, and this is what he said to the journalists upon his day of execution. He says, hey, fellas, how about this for the headlines of tomorrow's paper? French fries. There there you have it. Not too meaningful. I found this to be ironic. Are you familiar with the last words of JFK? We know that he was executed in Dallas, uh, Texas, and these were actually his words just moments before he passed. The governor's wife of Texas said this to him, you certainly can't say that the people of Dallas haven't given you a nice welcome. His response, no, certainly not. And the next thing is he was shot. He was just commenting on what a warm welcome he was receiving, and then he stepped into eternity. Well, this wouldn't really be a good sum up on last words if we didn't mention Jimi Hendrix, right? He's kind of a an icon in American culture. These are his last words. He says, I need help bad. Those are the last things that he said as he was going into eternity. He knew he wasn't in a good place. How about Winston Churchill? This surprised me a little bit, but these were his last words on his deathbed. I'm bored with it all. I'm bored with it all. It kind of fits a bit with his personality as you study history. But I've got to tell you, the best last words are recorded for us in scripture. Men like Moses, as he came came and gave his last words. Stephen, as he was being martyred. Of course, Jesus, as he was being crucified. And Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is finished in declaring that word of victory. For the next two weeks, we've got the privilege of studying Joshua's last words. This great man of God, this great leader, this great general. We're going to divide the study into two parts. Part one is chapter 23. Next week will be part two, chapter 24. And there's so much for us to glean as we study this together. So would you join me in verse one of chapter 23? Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all of their enemies round about that Joshua was old and advanced in age. So we do find that there's a period of rest that's given to Joshua and the children of Israel. The lesson for us in this is it's worth it to fight the battles. It's worth it to take on the giants. It's worth it to step out in faith. It's worth it to wrestle with those struggles with sin because ultimately there will be a time of rest. Joshua comes to the very end of his life. He's old and he's advanced in age, 
Bible commentaries estimate that he's about 110 years old because we know that he was 80 years old when he took the helm from Moses. So the scripture is right in saying that he's old and advanced in age. And he is finishing well. He's finishing strong. He's not backing off of the things that God has called him to do. And there's been people throughout history that even in their elderly years are still going strong. A Roman philosopher by the name of Cato, you might be ringing a bell for some, at age 81, he learned Greek. I mean, who learns Greek at age 81? He learned it so well that he went on to write commentaries on Greek that are some of the best works in the Greek language. Tennyson wrote one of his greatest works at age 83, a book called Crossing the Bar. Ever heard of John Wesley, a great preacher from the past, a circuit preacher? He would ride a horse and go from place to place teaching the Bible, telling people about Jesus. And he went 250,000 miles on horseback to tell people about Jesus. He gave 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. 40,000. At age 86, he began to complain that he could only give two messages a day. I find it difficult to give two different messages a week, one on Wednesday night and then on Saturday and Sunday, that second message, and to be able to prepare for those. At age 88, he was really frustrated with himself that sometimes he was sleeping in until 5.30 in the morning. So here's a guy that's old, and he's still going for it for Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of man that Joshua was, is that he was finishing well. And it's an encouragement for us. It's a challenge for us. It's not so much how you begin, but it's how you finish. Isn't that true with a race? The finish is everything. In our relationship with God, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Are we going to finish strong? We want to go out loving Jesus. We want to go through the years that God gives us where we're more and more in love with Jesus Christ. And Paul was the same kind of man. He said at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And will we be able to say that at the end of our lives? I finished the race that God has for me. Not that I was perfect, but I was in love with the Lord and I was finishing strong. In verse 2, And Joshua called for all of Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I'm old and advanced in age. At least Joshua could admit it. Amen? You know? He just, how many times do you find people going, yeah, I'm just old and advanced in age. A lot of times in our culture, the older we get, the younger we want to act. You know, it's just not very attractive. It's like, hey, we all know you're not 25 anymore, so don't try to act 25. I'm going to stop there so I don't get in trouble, okay? But he gets the leaders together. And by getting the leaders together, he's able to reach the whole entire nation. And Joshua is taking the time to pass on a godly legacy. If you've walked with the Lord for some time, take that opportunity to share and be intentional around those that you love, the things that God's done in your life. And then we also want to be very intentional about receiving a godly legacy. If you have people in your life that have walked with the Lord longer than you, is begin to ask them, and can you share the important lessons that you've learned in your relationship with the Lord? And there's always somebody that's younger and newer in Christ. Always. So look to pass on that legacy, but also look to be able to receive it. And the scriptures have so much to say about honoring our elders because we have so much to learn from them. And this is an opportunity for these men to learn from Joshua. In verse 3, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done 
to these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. So try to picture Joshua, this elderly man on his deathbed, talking maybe in a fragile voice that's been worn out by age. He says, hey, remember what God has done. God is the one who has wiped out these nations. Joshua's not pointing people to himself. He's not trying to have recognition. And sometimes if we've done something for a long time, we think that we deserve some recognition. We want people to see us and recognize us. And Joshua doesn't get the gang together and go, hey, how about there in Kadesh Barnea when everybody else didn't have faith? It was, yep, you guessed it, Joshua and Caleb. We had faith. And oh yeah, that whole Jericho thing, wasn't that just amazing military strategy? You guys should take note of that. Or wasn't any of that. He's saying this is what God has done. It was God's power. It was God's might. It wasn't strategies and the ability of Joshua and he's giving glory to the Lord. In verse four, see I've divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. Joshua's saying you got a job to do. The overall victory had been won, but it was the job of the 12 tribes to to go in and do the mop-up operations. Really the nine and a half tribes, because we studied last week how the two and a half tribes went to the other side of the Jordan. And this is important for us to realize is that The greater than Joshua, Jesus Christ, has won the victory in his death and resurrection. I love the emphasis of that in our songs this morning, of that Christ is risen and the victory has been given to us. But it's our responsibility to walk in faith and inherit our possessions. We have to possess our possessions. And Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer in Christ and you know Christ as your Savior, just like these 12 tribes, we've got to enter into what God has for us through faith. As you read on into the book of Judges, you'll find that the tribes didn't do this. They didn't fulfill their responsibility and ultimately walked in idolatry. But please know, it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's not your spouse's responsibility. It's not your Christian friend's responsibility. It's not your church's responsibility. It's not your pastor's responsibility. It's not your dog's responsibility. It's nobody else's responsibility. It rests upon the shoulder of every believer to inherit what God has for you. And remember, there was a whole generation that said, hey, we want the wilderness. We don't believe that God is powerful enough to bring us into his promises. So God says, okay. They were still God's children, but their experience was doing circles, doing laps in the wilderness. I've seen this before. I've seen this before. It was a journey that could last about two weeks, and they were doing it for 40 years, and they perished in the wilderness. Now, what's the theme of our study in Joshua? Anybody know? What, what's the theme of our study in Joshua? Enter in, okay? I'm going to give you one more opportunity. Okay, here we go. What's the theme of our study of Joshua? Enter, enter, enter out. No, enter in. That's what it is. Why? Because we don't want to just study the story in the Old Testament. We want to enter into all that God has for us. We're just about done. We're just about finished with this study in Joshua. Was there something that God had put on your heart to do in chapter 1? And now months later, no action 
has taken place to follow through with that? Was there an area of sin or struggle or temptation where the Lord said, I wanted you to get after it, but there was still no movement in what the Lord had put upon your heart? Hey, now's the time. Now, now is the time. It's our responsibility. And if you want the wilderness, God will love you. You'll be his child, but it won't be the life that the Lord intended for you and for me to live. In verse five, and the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord promised you. So we walk in faith in God's promises and God does the supernatural then allowing us to inherit those good things that he has for us. Victory over sin and seeing people come to know Christ as their savior. Verse six, therefore be very courageous to keep and to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Does this sound familiar at all from chapter one? This was the commission that was given to Joshua as he's taking the helm and he's taking the leadership. God said several times to Joshua, I want you to be strong and of good courage. I want you to meditate upon the word so that you can do it, that you can put it into practice. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Victory comes in being obedient to God's word. And Joshua's life is evidence of a man who obeyed that commission of that call. He studied the word. He meditated upon it. He lived it out and the Lord blessed his life and used his life. I know that this isn't rocket science, but we won't know how to obey God's word if we haven't studied God's word. We've got to get in it. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to know what it says. Meditate means to muse, to think over and think again and meditate upon it day and night. Make it your life and then we'll know what God's word is asking in a particular situation. And our job's not to come up with it. Our job's not to argue with it. Our job is to obey it. But successful, victorious Christian living will come in obedience to God's word. The giants fall when we choose to take God at his word and say, I'm going to obey it and I'm going to walk in it. Verse seven, unless you go among the nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them. The temptation is going to be to fall into idolatry of these nations that are left. Joshua's warning is, don't even mention the names of these false gods. Don't bow down to them. Don't make commitments in the names of the false gods. And this is a principle that runs through scripture, is that God doesn't want us getting comfortable or familiar with what is evil. And that's the idea behind this. If you talk about and you say the names of these gods, then you'll get familiar with them and ultimately it leads to compromise. And when we get familiar with darkness, it can lead to compromise in our lives. So in the New Testament, we find the same instruction. In Ephesians 5, verse 11 and 12, it says, "...and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness." but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. God said there's wickedness that's done that shouldn't even be spoken of. It shouldn't even be mentioned because as we mention it, we get familiar with it. And what once offended us, we're now comfortable with. And we see this happening as a culture and a society. I'm convinced things that would have caused our grandparents and our great-grandparents to roll over in their grave, right, 
are just common. It's just the way that it is today, and it's what everybody talks about. And so we don't even want to make mention. We don't want to give any publicity of things that are done that are wicked. In Romans 16, verse 9, it says, For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning what's evil. Get your PhD in what's good. That's work. It's hard to know and be wise in what is good and then be innocent concerning what's evil. It's a wonderful thing, and it's to your credit if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, have you heard about this vile thing? And you're like, no, I really haven't. I haven't really been keeping up with all the, the wickedness and, and the craziness in society. And then some would argue and say, well, then how can you reach people in darkness if you're innocent concerning what is, is evil? Jesus never became darkness to reach darkness. He was light, right? And the cross is cross-cultural. Jesus' death upon the cross, upon Calvary, is that light and that love that shines in to someone's darkness in the way that they're living their life. In verse 8, But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. Joshua is saying, Guys, you're holding fast to the Lord, and you need to continue to hold fast to the Lord. He's everything. He's your lifeline. He's your anchor. So you take yourself, and you stick yourself to God like glue. You cleave to God. You hold on to Him. You think about that if you're in a situation where you needed a lifeline, you're going to hold on and everything inside of you. And Joshua is saying, hold fast to the Lord. Continue in that relationship with the Lord. In verse 9, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. Joshua says, remember God's win-loss record. Remember how God has delivered these nations into your hands. Remember the battle of Jericho, the victory at Ai, after Israel got right with the Lord. Remember when God caused the sun and the moon to stand still and threw down hailstones from heaven. Look at what the things that the Lord has done. And as we're stepping into areas of faith, areas of wanting victory over sin, we have to look at who the Lord is. In verse 10, one man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. One person with God in his direction is a majority. That's what Joshua's saying. And you can see him looking out on these leaders and saying, hey, you right there, you right there, you right there, you go in God's direction, and just one of you is going to be able to defeat a thousand of the enemy. Joshua's message is really not focused on the strengths and the weaknesses of the individuals that he's talking to, but it's focused on the greatness of God. That God can take you into the land. That God can use your life. That God can give you victory over sin. And if we'll believe his promises and walk in it, then we'll experience that kind of victory. I saw this in a man's life that I met over the, the spring when we took this trip to Detroit to pray for the city of Detroit and see what God uh, was doing. We met a man by the name of Matt. And him and his family for about the last 10 years have been living in the inner city of Detroit to reach out to people with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. And as people have come to know the Lord, they invite them into their home. It's a discipleship house, and they've been able to buy two or three more houses. As you've noticed in the news, houses are pretty reasonable in inner-city Detroit, like three or $4,000 reasonable in inner-city Detroit. But they had a really tough summer. I found out this week that 
Their neighbors right across the street were drug lords and in a drug gang, and a neighboring drug gang came and had a shootout with them across the street. So they're shooting at the house across the street. The guys in the house are shooting back. The bullets are flying towards Matt's house. This shootout continues for three nights. There's 30 calls to the police. The police never respond. 30 calls to 911. Not one police officer will go in to this kind of conflict inside of Detroit. And I've got a report to you this morning that Matt and his family and their young kids, they are staying in the inner city of Detroit. One of the guys that partners in the ministry and does construction on the houses, he owns a construction company there in Detroit and his office is in the inner city. And he was shot this summer right in the neck, just missed his vein, his jugular vein, almost went into eternity. All logic would say it's time to get out of the inner city of Detroit, but he's also staying. Why? Because they believe the promise of scripture that one person in God's direction is a majority. And logically, we say, what can one family do in Detroit, right? Everything when God is with them and God is moving. You're saying, I don't understand. What are you saying, Eric, that nobody ever dies, that things always work out? No. Inside of God's call, people are martyred. There's suffering. There's difficulty. But God receives great glory when someone says, you know what? My life's not about my comfort. It's not about my wants. It's not my agenda. I want all that God has for my life. I want to see people come to know Christ as their Savior. I want to have victory over sin. I trust his promises. And the glory of God then goes out from that place. An encouraging verse. One man can put a thousand to flight. Verse 11. Therefore take careful heed to yourself. Pay close attention to your own heart and your own relationship with God. Now our tendency is to pay really close attention to other believers our spouse, our kids, our friends, our churches, and go, what's wrong with them? They need to love the Lord with a greater desire. And that's not what God says. God says, I want you to pay attention to yourself. It caused me to stop and think, take careful heed. What are some things in your life that you take careful heed to, that you really put a lot of detail? Maybe it's finances and making sure that there's a, a good budget and where spending is taking place. Hey, maybe it's uh, the NFL season that's starting on Thursday. Did you guys realize that? Yeah. NFL season starting. There's kind of a big game Thursday. and You pay close attention. You know who's playing and in this and in that. And Maybe it's you're single and all of a sudden you kind of started to meet somebody that's got you all Twitter painted inside. You're like, oh, you know. You don't want anybody to know, but you're doing some intelligence on this person. You're paying close attention to what's going on in this person's life. And there's nothing wrong with those things. It's a good idea to pay attention to finances. God created sports, can be used for his glory, and it's a wonderful thing, and reach out inside of that. And of course, the Lord is blessed in relationships. He kind of came up with the whole male and female thing. But the one thing that the Lord really wants us to pay close attention to is this. In verse 11, it says that you love the Lord your God. So we want to have something in our life that can give us inventory of how am I doing on loving the Lord? We have tests for our heart. We have tests for our cars. And the check engine comes on to say, warning, there's a problem with your car. Is there anything spiritually in your life that would be that warning signal to say, hey, wait a second, you're not loving the Lord like you once did. 
God wants us to be obedient to him. He wants us to be separate from the world, but he also wants us to be affectionate towards him. And that's what Joshua is appealing to. He says, I want you to love the Lord your God. There's a church in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus, a famous church that Jesus writes to, gives them great commendation. You guys hold fast to sound doctrine. That's amazing. I mean, we we see how difficult that is in the day and age that we live in. This church, they held fast to sound doctrine. And oh man, they were workers. They just worked the snot off of other churches. I mean, you could not find, that's a great phrase, isn't it? Not so much, but you couldn't find a church that did more things in the community. They fed the poor. They did Project Nehemiahs. They, man, they were great workers. But then Jesus says, I've got this one thing against you. You've left your first love. Jesus is so passionate about that affection that the church would have for Jesus. He says, if you don't repent and redo your first works, I'm closing your church down. I'm removing your lampstand. I don't want a loveless church. Even a church that has sound doctrine and good works, if they're not in love with me, I'm not interested. And how many of you want a relationship, especially a marriage relationship, where there's no love involved? And everything on the outside's good. You know, you've got the doctrine of marriage down. <laughs> you've got the works of marriage down, but there's no passion there. There's no excitement. There's, there's no love. There's no affection. So Jesus says, remember. Remember how it used to be. When you were in love with the Lord, repent and redo those first works. And would you consider just for a moment with me, where's your love for the Lord? And maybe the church attendance, good, giving's good, the works are good, but you know in your heart that there's no excitement for the Lord. You can't remember the last time that you really sang a song to God because you were moved with his love. Can't remember a time where tears started to come in your eyes because God was touching your heart. In fact, can't even remember a time where there's any conviction over sin. And you're like, oh, I remember when I was in love with God when he used to convict me. And I'd feel really bad about the way I was acting or the way I was talking or the way that I, I treated this person. And so go back to the Lord and go back to those first works. And when I first fell in love with the Lord, it was really simple. Was it that way for you? What was those first things that you were doing? Was it reading your Bible? Was it praying? Was it being in fellowship? Was it telling people about Jesus? We all have different first works, but go back to that place. But we want to pay attention to that. And when we start to see our love for the Lord diminish, we want to get right with the Lord. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issue of life. Church, your heart is important. Keep it with all diligence because everything flows out of the heart. Love the Lord your God. And verse 12, or else if indeed you go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you. Joshua knows how this works. Marriage leads to idolatry. If the children of Israel don't go destroy these nations, their tendency is going to be to go marry these nations. The only problem is these nations serve false gods, and before long, Israel is worshiping false gods as well. It happened in Solomon's life, the wisest man who ever lived. He married all of these ladies that served all these false gods, and his heart was turned away from the one true living God. So it's a message for us. 
you're single, you're thinking about getting married, you want to get married, all of your friends are getting married, and you finally meet Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and they're perfect. But the only thing is, is they don't love Jesus. They don't care about Jesus, but they're, hey, they're even tolerant of you. I mean, they're great with you going to church, great that you love, love Jesus, but they're not interested in Jesus. And then you're like, I can do some missionary dating. Oh, you know, I'm through. My testimony is going to lead this guy to Christ, lead this gal to Christ. Some people go to Uganda, Morocco, Mexico. I go dating, dating for Jesus. You know, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get her. You know what happens the majority of the time? That believer begins to compromise. And then even for married couples, strong Christians, it breaks my heart. I hear it as a pastor more than I would like of here's this couple that walked with God and was strong with God. And then one person in the marriage started to go through a hard time, got their eyes off of Jesus. And guess what? Here's an unbeliever to be a comforter. Here's an unbeliever to share the struggles in marriage. And they, oh, they just happen to be of the opposite sex. And attractions built. And all of a sudden, here's this person that walked with God, who's now in adultery and sexual sin. And they come and they sit in my office and they express that they don't care anything about Christ anymore. And they don't care about their spouse. And they want to go and, and, and do their thing. And it's, oh, how did this happen? Right here of what God describes in his word. Be careful with these romantic relationships because they can actually steal your heart from God. The New Testament says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Like, what in the world is that talking about? Is that talking about eggs or yolks or, I don't know, unequally yoked even means. And it's oxen would be yoked. This wooden frame that's so two oxen can plow the field together. And you couldn't take an ox and put it with a donkey. And you can't take a Christian and put it with an unbeliever. There's two different natures there. It's being like linked up with a bear. You're totally different priorities and passions. And it's not going to work out well. And so we have to be careful that these romantic relationships don't lead us away from a one true living God. Verse 13. You guys doing okay? Still with me? Thinking about the Labor Day barbecue? (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Okay, maybe I am. No, verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes. Hmm, that sounds fun. I want to try that one out. Until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. This says three important things. First is if you compromise, you won't be able to stand. You'll be entangled by the enemy and then you'll lose the good things that God has given to you, the good land that the Lord has provided. May we never take God's blessing for granted. Some of you have the favor of God upon your life. You're blessed. You're blessed in your marriage. You're blessed in your family. You're blessed in your workplace. You're blessed in your health. And it doesn't mean that walking with God, that all those things are promised to us. We know that, that Job went through a hard time, didn't he? But you can't deny the fact that God's blessing is upon your life. And may we not get so prideful and arrogant to think that we can begin to compromise and the blessing of God will stay on our lives. 
God's not going to mix with darkness. So that's the message to the children of Israel, is you're not going to be able to stand before your enemies once you begin to walk and compromise. How about this being entangled by the enemy? Consider that for a moment. Snares, traps, a whip on your side, thorns in your eyes. What Joshua's saying, if you don't go finish this job, this job's going to finish you. If you don't finish the enemy completely, then the enemy is going to become a whip on your side. The enemy is going to become thorn in your eyes. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. They settled for a partial victory, an 80% victory. The enemy was largely already defeated. They just had to go in and, and finish off the battle. And in our lives, our flesh, it's so easy for us to say, well, I'm not like I used to be. I'm a lot better in this particular area. And we don't press into God and his commands and his word, and we allow sin to remain in our lives. And eventually that 20% is not going to stay 20%. It's going to go to 30%. It's going to go to 40%. It's going to go to 50 And all of a sudden we find ourselves going back to some of the things that God has called us out of. There's a lady in Judges chapter 4. She's a hero of the faith. And she gives us an example of what we should do with our sinful flesh. Her name's Jael, J-A-E-L. The nation of Israel was in battle with Sisera, an enemy general. And her and her husband had actually lived under his regime. And Sisera is losing. He's running from the battle and he sees the tent of Jael and he says, oh, I can find refuge there. She'll hide out. She'll allow this to be a hideout for me. So here comes her former master, her old man, if you would. And what does Jael do? She gives Sisera some warm milk. Gross, right? You're in the Middle East. It's hot. You're running from the enemy. And what do you want? Some nice cold ice water. Not warm, stagnant milk. It was probably goat's milk. They didn't have cows. They had goats, and that was their herd. Maybe there was some hair in there from some freshly... <laughs> And so Sisera drinks this milk because he's thirsty. And of course, he's going to go to sleep. It was a plan of jail. And she goes up, and what does she do? She takes a tent stake, she puts it in the temple of jail, and she goes, bam, sucker, you're dead. And she drives it all the way through his head, and he's a goner. And scripture tells us our flesh needs to be what? Crucified with Christ. It's already taken place, but we have to remind our old man with the nail of the cross and the hammer of the cross, bam, you're dead, sucker. I'm not going to live in this way any longer. That's a strong message for us to stop and, and consider. Not going 80%, but going all the way and allowing the Lord to bring victory in our lives. Alan Redpath writes this about this section of Joshua. He says, How often we see that temptation we have pampered and encouraged and indulged. So did you catch that? Sometimes a temptation, instead of nailing it to the cross and allowing it to be crucified, we pamper it, we encourage it, we indulge in it, has become a scourge and a thorn in our side. The compromising Christian is not a happy man. Let the enemy remain in a Christian life. Let him have one foothold and he soon becomes a scourge. Strong warning there from Alan Redpath. In verse 14, Behold this day, I'm going the way of the earth. 
And you know in all of your hearts and all of your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God has spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Joshua says, guys, remember all of God's promises to give us this land? He's been faithful to every one of those promises. We need to be reminded of this. What are some of the good promises that our loving Father has given to us in his word? That whoever believes in Christ will be saved, eternal life. God's going to be faithful to that promise, isn't he? God in his word promises peace that surpasses understanding. If we'll come to him in thanksgiving and giving him our request, then he'll be gracious to give us a peace that surpasses understanding to guard our heart and mind. His peace is greater than any circumstance or situation or trial that we go through. The good things that God has spoken. One thing that Jesus spoke about a lot right before he died upon the cross was the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to the life of the believer. And he says, you're going to have a comforter. You're going to have a helper. One that comes alongside, one who lives inside of you that enables you to live the Christian life. Do we believe that good promise of the Holy Spirit in our lives? But the way that we appropriate this, the way that we actually apply it, the difference between knowing, hey, there's a really delicious smoothie over there or whatever you really enjoy, this nice refreshment, this ice cream of knowing it's there and experience it. How do we know these good promises of God, but how do we experience them? By faith, by believing them. Last night for the Saturday night service, I was driving to service, and I've got my iPhone, and I had it plugged into my stereo, and I was listening to the audio Bible. I got the whole Bible on my little phone. I actually found a feature on my smartphone that will make me smarter. That it's listening to God's word in my car. And I was in the section of Matthew where Jesus picks up a little child and he says, I want you to be like this little kid. Now, is that the way we often think of little kids? Hmm, I want to be like that kid right there. What was Jesus talking about? The faith of a child. You take a young child and you hold up the color pink and guess what? They believe you that it is pink. Now, if you're really twisted in the head, you can hold up green and say, this is green. And their whole life, they're going to think that green is pink, and it's not. You've messed them up, right? That's the place of their faith, is they'll trust what you say. And that's the message, is God wants us to trust what he says. We sing a worship song here, give me faith to trust what you say. And it's as we trust the good promises of God that we begin to experience them in our lives. Verse 15, Therefore it shall come to pass that all of the good things that have come upon you, which the Lord God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he's destroyed you from this good land which the Lord God has given you. Hmm, what do you want? Do you want the good things or the harmful things? The choice is up to us. See, God's a loving Father, and if we trust in him, walk in obedience, obey his word, oh, he'll be faithful to those good promises but he also will discipline the children that he loves. So if we walk in discipline or disobedience, then he'll be faithful to bring the discipline. In verse 16, when you've transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. That's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. 722 B.C., 
the ten northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians. 586 BC, the following two tribes in Judah are taken captive by the Babylonians. They lost the good land. Do we want to lose the good things that the Lord has so graciously given in our lives? I don't think so. So this farewell address, these last words of Joshua, he encourages us, be obedient to the Lord, be separate from the world, be affectionate with the Lord. There's times in teaching God's word that I can't find the words to express the importance of a passage. And this is one of those times. It's so easy for it to kind of come in one ear and go out the other, and we leave without stopping to consider what this section of scripture has to say. On one side, we've got these wonderful things that God wants to do in our lives, and I'm not talking about more comfort or more riches, but I'm talking about a life that counts for eternity, where you can be used to win people's hearts to Jesus Christ. You can impact eternity. Seeing God defeat the giants for his kingdom. And then this other picture is a life of compromise, where God then brings this loving hand of correction, and it's painful, it's difficult, it's thorns in the eyes. So let's press in and say, Lord, I want all that you have for me. I want to follow you. My heart is not just to give messages week after week and necessarily try to be the most articulate preacher, pastor, Bible communicator. And it's really not the heart of of our church to just do service and to sing worship songs and to go through the scripture we want to know Jesus. We want the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our life to understand who he is. We want to be disciples and walk in everything that he has for us. I would love to all be together in eternity and be relishing in God's glory of how he used our lives, don't you? Wouldn't you love to be on your deathbed instead of going, hey, you know, I'm not really sure the meaning of my life like Joshua, to actually be on your deathbed and have something to say to your kids, to your grandkids, your great-grandkids. Say, you know what? This is what God did here. These are the things I really remember is when I reached out to my neighbor and saw God do an amazing work in their life and bring them to Jesus Christ. This was a real difficult time in our family. This was a difficult time in our, our marriage. And your mom and I, we pressed into God. And God was faithful and, and he did a, a great work. See, that's, a, that's available. Christ has died on the cross. He's risen again. And that's the life he wants to give to us if we'll walk in obedience to his word, if we'll take those steps of faith, if we'll take on those areas of struggle. So let's stand and pray together. Father, as we end this service, we just ask that you would touch our hearts, that you would give us the knowledge of your son your glory, your greatness? Would you give us a vision of the wonderful things that you want to do? Father, would you just begin to birth the calling that you have upon us as a church, that you have upon individuals? Would you please help us to not settle for partial victories, to not leave the door open for compromise? Would you bring fruit in our lives? Father, now for those that don't know you as our Savior, Lord, would today be the day of salvation? In Jesus' name, amen. Very simply, but very clearly, God loves you. He died upon the cross for you, and he rose again. 
something that's very important to us as a church is whenever we have service is that we share the gospel, that we give God the room to win hearts to Jesus Christ. And the gospel is this. It really starts with bad news, that we're all sinners and fallen short of God's perfection. And because of that, we need a savior. And Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again, that all who believe in him should be saved, believing that he's God, believing that he died and rose again, turning away from sin and repentance and saying, Jesus saved me. I received this free gift of salvation. And we're going to end in a little different way in just a moment in celebration. The, the guys, Bruce and the guys, have got a blues song for us to celebrate God's goodness. And in the midst of that song, you come down and let somebody know on the ministry team, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. At the end of that song, come down and say, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. But the Lord loves you and he has good things that he wants to bring in and through your life. So let's end celebrating the Lord together. We hope you just enjoy this song that they've got prepared for you.
never cheated Say you never lied What about your ever gets What about Truth and the light.